Welcome to the Basilea Hollywood Podcast, a community of friends committed to the message and practice of Jesus and His Kingdom. Good morning. So, as most of you know, we have been doing a teaching series that we're calling Who is Our God, where we talk about various aspects of who God is, what God is like, and we hope that as we do that, God will make Himself known to us in new and wonderful ways. And today I'm going to talk about the mercy of God, what it means that God is merciful. If you are familiar with your Bible, and if you're not, getting familiar with it is a good idea, but if you're familiar with it, you may recall the story of Esther, which, of course, we find in the book of Esther. And what we find is that Esther is a, an Israelite woman who lived during the time uh, of exile under the Persian Empire. So she's under the authority of the Persian king, living not in the Promised Land, but elsewhere in the empire. Esther is raised by her uncle Mordecai, and uh, as our story unfolds, the king of Persia is having a celebration. All the important people are gathered together in the palace or wherever, and the king wants the queen, or possibly one of the queens, because kings in this day and age, the style was to have quite a few wives and concubines, so there's probably a lot of queens, but one of the queens he wants to call into his presence so he can show her off to his guests, show off her beauty, and she refuses to come. And so this is a breach of uh, the honor that the king expects, and so out of uh, retribution, he sends his, his wife, the queen, away, and he decides to get a replacement queen. And so he orders that uh, beautiful young virgins from all over his territory be brought before him so that he can choose the one he likes most and make her the new queen because uh, that's what kings did back then. And so he does, and Esther must have had something going on for her because she, she won. <laughs> uh, so she becomes the new queen. And uh, as the, a series of plot twists and turns occur, the king ends up being manipulated into issuing a decree that is very bad for the Israelites who live among his lands. And the decree says that on a given day, people from all the different territories are authorized to attack the Israelites and take their property freely, legally, with impunity. And uh, obviously that's really, really, really bad for the Israelites. And so Esther, uh, with great bravery and at the risk of her life, uh, comes before the king when he's seated on his throne in his royal court and pleads on behalf of her people uh, to save the day. And she does this at the risk of her life because the protocol is that if someone enters the king's presence when he's seated on his throne without being summoned, they're to be promptly killed because you don't do that because there's a boundary there, because there's some sort of sacredness to the king's court, and it's a dishonorable thing to, to enter audaciously. And so the only way not to be killed if you enter the king's court uninvited is if the king extends his scepter towards you, thereby extending mercy, and, and he's willing to entertain you even though you, you weren't invited and you were supposed to be. And so uh, we might say, well, it's the queen, she's the wife of the king, of course he's not going to have her killed, but then remember, he sent away the first queen for not coming into his presence when she was summoned, 
So it's not too much of a stretch to imagine that he might not be merciful if uh, arguably something even more of a breach of honor if, if the new queen comes when she wasn't summoned, if she has the audacity to approach the throne uninvited. So it's not a given. It's not a given that he's going to extend mercy. She's not sure if she's going to live or die. But at the behest of her uncle Mordecai, she boldly goes before the king. He does extend mercy. He does hold his scepter out to her. And ultimately, long story short, she saves the day for her people. Living in our day and age, and particularly in the United States, but I think it's true of other places as well, we live under a system where no one person is, is able to gain total and absolute authority. So if uh, an unworthy, unfit leader comes into power, hypothetically, um, they can't be too powerful, they can only be so powerful. Uh, there are checks and balances and systems in place to keep power from getting too great and people becoming a tyrant, right? This is fundamental to how the U.S. is set up. It's fundamental to how I think most modern democracies are set up. Uh, it's meant to avoid king-like states. But in an ancient context, when this is how things are done, a king or a ruler exercises total authority over what happens in their territory, and they exercise total authority over cases, legal cases, that take place in their territory. So instead of going before a judge, which is how our system is set up, you go before the king if you have a legal dispute and the king decides, and the king is judge, jury, and executioner in that case, and what he says goes, and there's no checks or balances on it whatsoever. In such a situation, it is exceedingly important that you do not want a harsh king who doles out punishment excessively for obvious reasons, right? If you have a harsh king, then you can have horrible things happen for minor offenses. That's, that's bad. That's obvious why that's bad. If you have a permissive king, this is also a problem because if the king turns a blind eye to wrongdoing and injustice and does not see to it that wrongdoing has consequences, then people can do all kinds of horrible things to each other with impunity. They can, they can do things and know they'll get away with it and, and some will. And so you have like anarchy, you have chaos, you have, it is dangerous to live under a harsh king and dangerous to live under a king who is lax about justice. And while we're at it, it's also very important, you don't want to live under a king who uh, is impressed with social status because then he's going to favor the person who is of higher standing instead of the, the person who is in the right. And you don't want a king who accepts bribes because then the rich have an unfair advantage. So what you want is a king who's concerned with justice and justice alone when it comes to these legal proceedings, not a king who is um, divergent from that in some way. And so in Deuteronomy 16, we see an example of the fact that it is important to God that in his territory, in the promised land, the rulers who are in charge um, king properly. You know, they, they judge with righteous judgment. So it says, you shall appoint judges and officials throughout your tribes, that's the 12 tribes of Israel, in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, and they shall render just decisions for the people. You must not distort justice, you must not show partiality, and you must not accept bribes. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. Justice and only justice you shall pursue so that you may live and occupy the land that the Lord your God has given you. In other words, if you pursue injustice, you will not continue to occupy the land, and that's how things played out. So it's important to God that the people in charge, the rulers and, and appointed folks who are judging, who are functioning as the king or the king's delegates, 
are doing so righteously, pursuing justice, right? Because this is what's needed for, for people in the land to prosper. Not only that, but in quite a lot of places in Scripture, we find that God is portrayed as an ideal and righteous king. God is like you'd want your king to be. God is king of the universe the way you would want a king to be king over a region in these respects. So it is a common misconception, and I've said this a number of times, but it bears repeating. Uh, people often think of the God of the Old Testament as a God of judgment, a God who doles out punishment and is relatively mean, and the God of the New Testament as a God of mercy, who's nice and makes you smile. <clears throat> I mean, right? That's the stereotype. That's how most people, if they, certainly people who don't read their Bibles assume that's the case. Uh, and some of us may as well. Uh, if we look at it closely, if we read through Scripture and with this in mind, it turns out fairly quickly that actually the God of both Testaments, surprise, surprise, is the same God and is a God of both judgment and mercy, but especially mercy. So first and foremost, God is a merciful God, but not in such a way that God is not a God of judgment. We find that these things are closely related. One of the places I like to go to convey that is the, uh, the Sinai account where Israel has just been delivered from uh, Egypt. They're at Mount Sinai. They're receiving the Torah, the Ten Commandments, all that good stuff. <clears throat> and uh, Moses goes up the mountain. Then he has to come down, goes up again. Uh, the second time he goes up, he asks God to reveal his glory to him. And God says, I will, I will cause my goodness to pass before you and I will declare my name to you. And so, in other words, I will declare who I am to you. So if we look to Scripture for where God says point blank, this is who I am, this is one of the key places we would look. And this is what the Lord says. The, what he says to Moses on Sinai is, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity, iniquity and transgression and sin, yet by no means clearing the guilty, but visiting the iniquity of the parents upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. There's a lot there, and I can't talk about all of it. But the key thing is that God is first and foremost merciful, but not to the exclusion of judgment. That would be irresponsible, because you don't want a king who uh, does not punish wrongdoing. You want a king who sees to it that actions that are unjust have consequences. But you also don't want a king who's excessively harsh. You want a king who seeks restoration, who seeks the greater good, and that often means behaving with mercy. They're not contradictory. You cannot, in fact, say one without really saying the other, or you're making a distortion. When it comes to consequences, this is a little bit of a tricky subject because in the Old Testament, you mostly are talking consequences in the here and now, right? People sin and something bad happens to them that you could, you know, tape record if you had a tape recorder. It's something in the here and now in the present. Um, Christians generally think of the consequence of wrongdoing as first and foremost future. There's a day of judgment when um, ultimately all injustice is answered by God. So even if someone dies without ever getting their comeuppance, ultimately God sees to it that uh, they, didn't get, they didn't get away with it. Uh, if you want to know exactly what I think about hell, there's a sermon all about that. You can go on our podcast and find the one called Hell. And uh, I, I don't have time to tease that out in detail, but I do believe in hell. 
However, it is also biblical, in the New Testament in fact, that God does punish sin in the here and now, even in, a, in sort of a Christian context. That's a thing. Read the scriptures without assuming it's not true, and you'll find it's actually there quite a bit. So it is my conviction that that's a thing. I also feel really bad at talking about that because I've never really learned from teachers who talk about that. The reason I think I haven't, and I don't know how you, if you guys have heard this kind of talk or not, the reason I think we are bad at talking about this, why many Christians are bad at talking about this, is I think we have an immature view of God's punishment. When you're a child, uh, parents often punish their children, and if they're good parents, they punish their children for their own good to make them better and stronger and people of character, but it feels mean, right? Uh, it feels like, why don't you want me to be happy? You're supposed to love me, but you're being mean to me. You're keeping me from something I want or whatever. Uh, and I know, you know, some parents are excessive. Some parents are abusive. That's not what I'm talking about. But good parents, loving parents who punish appropriately do so for their child's good. And once we grow up, oftentimes, if we did have a parent who disciplined well, we realize, yeah, that, that was right. They should have done that. I'm glad they did. That's made me a better person as a result. I would not want to have been a child who was never disciplined. That's how you get issues. <clears throat> One of the ways. Uh, so I would suggest if we don't get that punishment is good when done right, we have an immature view of punishment, and we should adopt a grown-up view of punishment. I think Scripture has a grown-up view of punishment. Uh, and so I, but I think most Christians, frankly, at least the ones I've encountered, generally don't. We generally think it's a bad thing if God is a God who punishes. Why? Punishment is a good thing when you do it right. So I haven't seen it modeled. I don't know of a lot of people who talk about this well. I couldn't point to here's where I experienced uh, God's loving punishment in the here and now. But I do believe it's a thing. It's something I wish I understood better. And maybe as a group, we can learn some things about that together. Now, there's also then the mercy side, uh, God's mercy alongside God's judgment. And I think that there's also, it's also possible to have a childish view of God's mercy. If we see God's mercy as either God saying sin's not a big deal, or that it doesn't matter, or that we should feel free to do whatever feels good and not worry about it too much, then we have an immature view of God's mercy because that's not what God's mercy is for. God's mercy is about restoration, just like God's punishment is about restoration. God's mercy is about uh, us and the world being better. Uh, if God forgives sin, God forgives sin so that we can be reconciled to God, so that we can walk in His ways, so that uh, people don't do horrible things to each other, etc. And so, um, the best example I have for this, it's not a perfect example, but uh, when I was a teenager, um, I used to carry butterfly knives around and do cool tricks with them. And then I got caught and uh, got arrested. And so I got charged with, or at least I got arrested for carrying concealed deadly weapons. That's a scary sounding charge. Um, I lied and said I didn't realize it was illegal. I didn't know it was illegal, but I lied. And uh, I hadn't, didn't have any other charges, looked like an honest suburban kid. Uh, whoever decides such things decides, you know what? This is a good kid. We don't want to have all this. We don't want to send him down a, a nasty path in life. We, we think, you know, that this can be an isolated incident and then we can move on. And so basically, you know, I had to talk with a couple people and do a little community service and basically was off the hook. Like I didn't get a charge on my record, uh, et cetera. 
And the goal here is mercy for the sake of restoration. Probably there's some unfairness in how it was deemed that I was a suitable candidate for this and someone else wasn't, Fair, you know, fine. But the principle is mercy for the purpose of restoration. Not mercy to say no big deal, not mercy to say, you know, it doesn't matter, but rather uh, mercy that, that is aimed at me walking on the straight and narrow, hopefully um, thereafter. And I believe that this is the kind of mercy with which God is merciful. It seeks restoration. And for this reason, mercy should push us towards holiness. That is, push us towards living a life that pleases God, that's consistent with who God is, that, that um, glorifies God. So mercy, if we take it as an excuse to do what we feel like, is a childish view of mercy. It is not a correct view of God's mercy. If we understand God's mercy right, it should cause us to want to live in a way that God wants us to live trusting that God's ways are good. I think sometimes uh, in our day and age, there, you know, Harry and I were talking earlier, there's this sense that like an attitude that you're not the boss of me. You don't get to tell me what to do. Uh, a suspicion of authority and a not wanting to be uh, impressed upon by anyone else. I know what's best, right? Our tendency is going to be to want to seek mercy that, that results in us doing what we want. But again, that's not a mature understanding of mercy. Mercy pushes toward holiness. Sometimes, to understand God's mercy well, we first need to come to a recognition of our own sin. I don't know that that's always exactly how it works, but certainly for me and for a lot of other people, recognizing our sin is the first step toward recognizing the depths of God's great and wonderful restorative mercy. For me, uh, the way I identify with this most is um, something that happened to me in my early 20s. I had been, uh, through most of college, was in a relationship with one particular woman, on and off. It was a very turbulent and toxic relationship, not a good one, not healthy. Uh, but we ended up moving in together um, after college, you know, for a little while, uh, sharing a bed, all that stuff. And then uh, we reached a point where we were pretty sure that I had gotten her pregnant. And she made it clear that she was not prepared to be a mom and that would, would insist on an abortion if she was pregnant. And that was distressing to me. I, didn't, I wasn't walking with Jesus at that time. I didn't have a really strong conviction about that, but it felt distressing to me. It felt like I'm not cool with this at all. I'm really uneasy. And as a result, there were you know, a number of nights where like, she would fall asleep and I'd sneak into the other room in the dark and I didn't have a really strong sense of who God is and all that, but I was like, you know, had some sense that God was there. And so I said, you know, uh, I would say, God, I, you know, things like, I'm in over my head here, I don't know what to do, I need you, help, etc., like you do sometimes. <clears throat> Turned out, um, yeah, so yeah, so came to a place of desperation. Uh, we made the trip to Planned Parenthood. Turned out she wasn't pregnant, very relieved by that. Uh, didn't have to go through all that stuff. Um, I would have really regretted that if that was how things played out. But shortly, and the relationship kind of broke up after that because of the shaking that had happened. Uh, but then really not very long after that is when I had my big awakening to Jesus and came to realize God's mercy and uh, how God is not only tolerant of me, but actually welcomed me in to have significance and preach his word and all this good stuff, you know, being welcomed into God's family uh, mercifully. And I don't know that I would have gotten that 
to the extent that I did if I hadn't first come to this place of desperation and recognizing that my uh, sin had gotten me into uh, a place that was unmanageable. And I will just clarify uh, while I'm on the subject, because I think it's worth saying once in a while, uh, I am quite convinced it is scriptural that sex outside of marriage is a sin. I was sinning uh, by doing that. If you're doing that, you should repent. The good news is God's mercy is big, and uh, that's available to us. So, God's mercy uh, sometimes requires recognizing and repenting of sin. To repent of our sin is a gift because it opens up uh, the opportunity to walk in God's ways, which are ultimately for our good and for the world's good. And that mercy should push us towards holiness, seeking to live in a way that pleases God. Final point is that God's mercy should also push us to be merciful. So it's not to be, um, you know, coming to an awareness of sin and being forgiven is not an excuse to be nasty towards people because of sin. It is uh, necessary to be merciful the way God is merciful, not taking sin lightly, but treating sinners generously. And so I thought I'd read you Romans 2. I could go a lot of other places for that idea. But Romans puts it like this. After listing a bunch of vices, a bunch of categories of sin, Paul says, Do you imagine, whoever you are, that when you judge those who do such things and yet do them yourself, you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Do you not realize, this is one of those money bits, that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But by your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And so there's a lot of related ideas there. That mercy should lead to repentance is there but also that mercy should lead to mercifulness. That, you know, mercy is not an excuse to judge other people's sin. Mercy is a reason to uh, seek other people's restoration kindly, patiently, like God is merciful. So, what I would like to do uh, is I would like us to have a couple of minutes where we're quiet and we give the Lord an opportunity to bring certain things to mind. There's various kinds of things that the Lord might bring to mind. Uh, it may be that there's an area of sin that God wants to put his finger on today for you to repent. It may be that you're already aware of an area of sin, but God wants to give you a greater understanding and experience of his mercy. It may be that uh, God wants to talk to you about the ways in which you are uh, or maybe could be more merciful towards others. So there's a few different things, a few different ways this might apply to you. So be it. Uh, let's let the Lord speak. Uh, if you don't understand what that means, you can just be open to the possibility that God would bring something to mind while you're sitting quietly. And in a couple of minutes, uh, we will regroup and talk about prayer. So what I don't want you to do is pray through the thing if you realize a thing you need to pray about, but more come up with a prayer agenda, and then we'll pray with each other about whatever's coming up, okay? So let's take like two minutes and just let the Lord have an opportunity to talk to you. You don't have to take my word for anything. Take it up with God, okay? My name is Troy. I saw a picture as we were praying, and the picture was of a fishing line. And the sense that I got in regards to, you know, what does this mean is that I think as the Lord, even in this moment, is bringing up um, 
He's highlighting, he's putting his finger on uh, sin in our lives that he wants us to uh, repent from. That for some of us, um, the you know, that there's like, it's almost like there's a hook, like the sin is like a hook in us, like from like a fishing line in a, in a way. And I feel like you might, you might actually be feeling angry and or frustrated because maybe you have tried to get this, uh, this hook out of you before and it didn't work and you feel like god okay like i get it you want me to turn but and i've tried and i can try again but i'm really frustrated and angry because i i don't really know how to get this out i'm not really sure uh what to do where to go where to turn and uh, my sense is that if that's you today that Jesus actually wants to meet you uh, in that place and would like to speak to you. Um, so if, if you're here and that, uh, that at all resonates with you, um, just go ahead and raise your hand. Okay. Um, so if that's you and you're raising your hand, um, feel free to, uh, I'd love to pray with you and we can pray together. So I'll just be um, up here and just come find me, okay? And we'll pray about that. Thanks, Troy. So uh, if, even if that particular word doesn't resonate with you, if you do have something else that you feel like the Lord is uh, pressing on that you wanna pray with someone about, there's a few ways you can do that. There'll be a couple of us who are trusted people in this community that, uh, th that are regarded by this church as safe people to deal with kind of heavy stuff with uh, will be over by the stairs, and you can come pray with us. If you want to just talk to uh, whoever's nearby you or if there's someone else in the room that you want to go up to, that's, you can feel free to do either of those things as well. If you have something really, really sensitive and you don't trust anyone in the room, but you have someone else in your life that you do trust to work that out with, I accept that that might be a thing that you need to do is talk about it with them, but please don't delay. If you feel like God is bringing something to mind, don't delay in dealing with that. Uh, and if you don't have anyone you trust, you should uh, try to be open to trusting people a little bit more. Uh, if you want to talk to me, I will say people have confessed all kinds of gnarly sins to me. I will not be shocked by whatever you tell me, and I know how to keep a secret, okay? So God bless you guys. Um, I'll say, I'm going to say a prayer, and then I'll just invite you to uh, address, follow up on whatever you feel like the Lord is talking to you about before you leave today, okay? So, Father, thank you that you are uh, and you reveal yourself to us as fundamentally a God of patience, kindness, mercy, and who seeks restoration. And I pray that we would know you that way today and that we would get a better sense of the depths of your mercy today. I pray that you would guide us by your Holy Spirit in how to walk in a way that pleases you. I pray that you would uh, guide us in unburdening ourselves where we need to do that. And I pray that you would oversee everything that happens today and bring us uh, closer and closer to you in a way that leads to flourishing, God. I thank you for that. And um, I thank you for this group of people. Um, 
And I just say that you deserve all the glory, Lord. Thank you. Amen.